Bianca Goodson was a rising star as a techno-economist when headhunted at the end of 2016 to head up Trillion Management Consulting. This was a new division in the Trillion Group. But barely three months into her new job as CEO, she realized something was very wrong with the way Trillion was doing business with ESCOM and other government entities. Bianca resigned and later became a whistleblower on Trillion and their involvement with the Guptas and State Capture. Bianca Goodson's bravery saved South African taxpayers at least 10 billion rand, yet today she battles to find a job. In this first episode of Alta's new podcast series, Bianca Goodson talks frankly about the impact blowing the whistle had on her life, not only on her career, but also on her family life. She also gives advice to people thinking of blowing the whistle and shares her view on the need for better whistleblowing laws. I'm Ilse Salzwedel for Alta and my guest today, Bianca Goodson. Bianca, welcome and thank you for sharing your story. Thanks for having me. Now, for everybody who doesn't know who Bianca Goodson is, please share a bit about yourself and your story and how you became a whistleblower. I just laugh when people say that because the answer to that question is that I used to be an absolute average person before I worked for Trillion. I used to be somebody who had an aspiring career in the mining industry I had, I, I loved my life. You know, I was married. Um, I just had, I think, I think my daughter was about three years old at the time before I, I got involved in Trillion. And, you know, we had just bought a house and sort of your average sort of life. You know, you save up for your holidays. You can only do the holidays when the kids are at school and so forth. I had a very, very average life. And then in 2016, I, I accepted an offer to work for Trillion. I didn't work there for very long. I only worked for three months. And in 2017, I decided to let all the information that I knew about Trillion, I made it public. And I guess officially that's when I became a whistleblower. And that was in September 2017. Prior to that, however, I did a lot of things in the background to to try and help the country in whichever way I could. So... I was a witness to um, Tuli Marancela, who was the public protector at the time, and I think that is about August 2016, and I did contribute towards a state of capture report. Um, I helped Jeff Budlender in the early 2017s in his investigation into Trillion, but I, I guess most importantly was when I decided to blow the whistle in September 2017, and I, I just, I decided that was it, you know, um, so so that's when I became, if you <laughs> I'm sort of famous or, or better known if, and this makes me laugh but prior to September 2017 or prior to me joining Trillion people didn't know about me I used to be your average mom doing the school run just working in a mining company and trying to make a difference I am a daughter of two pastors from Peter Marisburg that's who I am I, I don't know how else to describe myself you held quite a high position and you are well qualified and you were approached to come and do this job at Trillion. Tell yes. us about your career before Trillion. I studied physics and maths. So I've got a postgraduate degree in physics and maths. So I'm a bit of a geek. And I started my career in the mining industry, as I mentioned, but particularly on the consulting side. 
And my career has taken me all over the world. It was always entrenched very deeply in mining. And, and ultimately, it culminated in me working for Anglo-American. In 2015, the late 2015, so around about October, November 2015, I was approached by a gentleman by the name of Clive Angel. And he had what seemed like such a brilliant opportunity for me to become the CEO of the management consulting division of Trillion. And the way that he pitched it to me made sense because, you know, the work that they were, that Trillion was particularly poised to do was at Eskom. And I understood the large engineering industry very well because I was from mining. I also had a bit of a management consulting background, so it made sense. And I apparently, according to Clive, had come quite well recommended by people that we knew in common. So that's what happened. And at the time I was at Anglo, Anglo was going through a whole bunch of restructuring and I got this opportunity and I thought it was a great opportunity because the way that it was presented to me looked good. And I wanted to do what I could do to try and make Eskom a bit of SOE so that we could stop load shedding. So that's sort of how it came about. Mm. So although I accepted the offer in November, I only formally became the CEO of Trillion Management Consulting on the 1st of January 2016. Did the name Eric Wood mean anything to you at the time? It didn't. And and he clearly was somebody who was significant because I went through sort of a series of interviews to get this position at Trillion, right? I was interviewed by initially Clive Angel and then later on by Salim Essa. And in between that, I was also interviewed by Eric Wood and Mohammed Bobat. And I Googled these people, you know, like it's, it's what you do. Before you're going to meet somebody for the first time, you Google them. You try and sort of internet store them to see like, who are they? Are they legit? Are they who they say they are? And I did that. And it didn't ring any bells at the time. The only thing about the Guptas and state capture that had come out in the press at that time was a lot about the waterkloof landing um, with the Gupta wedding and stuff. But the extent of state capture wasn't in the public domain at that point in time. It came out a lot from 2016. Because um, if I remember correctly, in early 2016, the Nkandla pulled the bog became yes. known. And I think Tuli Madoncela's report on state capture was only produced Released at the end, in about end of 2016. September, October, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So during the time that I was working for Trillion, there were suspicions about the Guptas, so to say, right? Mm. The term state capture hadn't necessarily gone viral, if I can try and sound like a millennial. So I was very naive. Well, I can't even say that I was naive because I didn't know better. When yeah. I accepted the offer and I started working at Trillion. Um, so I started working at Trillion in, in, in January, the first working day of January 2016. And my intention was to build a company. It was to build a management consulting company. Between January and March, there were so many things that were concerning about the way that Trillion did business relative to what my career taught me. So you must remember in my career, I'd worked for companies like Accenture. I worked for Anglo-American. I worked for huge companies like Wally Parsons. We've got very strict governance structures in place, right? And relative to my experience, Trillion really concerned me. And that's why, you know, my tenure at Trillion was very short. It, was, it wasn't even three months. I mean, I resigned on the 18th of March. What raised the red flags for you? 
a whole bunch of little things. But then there was one thing, you know, how people call it the straw that broke the camel's back. But the straw that broke the camel's back for me was was the banker Baroda thing, which I'll explain just now. But there were tiny little things, right? There were things like, for example, Clive Angel would say to me one day that Trillion is not going to allow the the CEOs or the executive level to manage the finances. The finances are going to be managed at the holding company level. And I thought that that was bizarre. I mean, Anglo-American, for example, has got exactly the same setup where there's a holding company, but you've got all these different subsidiaries like Anglo-Platinum, Anglo-Coal, and so forth. But the CEOs of those different divisions have to manage the profitability of those specific divisions. But Clive would say to me, nope, that's not going to happen. You guys are not going to see anything about money. Just for the listener's benefit, just explain that a bit more. Trillion was actually called Trillion Capital Partners. And that was the holding company. So that was like the Anglo-American group equivalent, right? Mm. And they had, I think it was five subsidiaries. Um, one subsidiary was Trillion Management Consulting, of which I was the CEO. Mm. Then there was Trillion Financial Advisory, which was another subsidiary of which Masilo Matepo was the CEO. There was Trillion Securities. Mm. And the acting CEO for Trillion Securities was actually Eric Wood. There was Trillion Asset Management, and the CEO for that was Daniel Droy. And then when I started, but it changed later, but when I started in January, Trillion had a subsidiary called Trillion Properties. And the CEO for that was actually Mark Pominsky. Outer charges against Pominsky for his role in State Capture. Um, Eric Wood is a well-known name in State Capture. These people are all linked to that Gupta empire and to the the seizing and the looting of assets from um, the Absolutely. state. Absolutely. Okay. At the time, however, it just wasn't known. Yes. If you Googled Mark Pominsky at that time, all you would have got was his involvement in, I think it was Blue Telecoms. Yes. Or Blue, yeah. Something like that, right? Mm. Since then, I'm shocked and I it makes me want to throw up. I actually feel physically sick when I think about what I know now. Yes, because nobody knew at the time. In hindsight, yeah. we now know the names Eric Wood and Mark Pominsky, but they were fairly unknown at the stage when you joined. Even when I left, eh? yeah. they were still fairly unknown. So I left in March 2016. Let me come back to the reasons why I resigned. So there yes, were all please. these little concerning things, right? So there were things like the money would be managed centrally. Then there was, I remember distinctly, it was actually Masilo Matepo's birthday. It was, it was the 16th of March. It was a Wednesday. And I walk into Masilo. Masilo shared an office with this, the group CFO. His name was Tabojo Lebolo. And I walked into the office as I arrived, as you do. You know, you, you get a cup of coffee and then you go and say hello to people and stuff like that in the office. And that's what I did that day. And Tabojo was very worried. And Tabojo said, guys, we don't have the Eskom MSA. Eskom doesn't want to sign. So I say to Masila, hey, well, that, that's a problem because Eskom was supposed to be the main source of revenue. Mm-hmm. And then Tabojo says, but there's a bigger problem. And me and Masila say, what? What could be bigger than the fact that we don't have work? And he comes over to me. I'm standing with Masila and he writes in Masila's notebook and he says, they are going to fire the finance minister. And he points in the direction of Eric's office. At the time, it was Praveen Gordon. Anyway, so Tsubokha writes this thing on Masilo's notepad, right? And then um, Masilo specifically, because she's financial advisory, she screams out and she says, are they mad? Do they not know what happened to the economy with Nslantla? 
you know, referencing what had just happened in December of the previous year. And I, I just was like, I couldn't handle this. And I remember I felt a bit fluey and I, I felt like I was sick and our offices were in Melrose. So I walked down to the clicks in Melrose and I bought Carenza. And while I was busy in the queue or waiting in the queue to pay for this Carenza, I phoned my husband and I say to him, I say, can you imagine that these people are talking about finance ministers being changed? And I said to him explicitly, I'm telling you this now because I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But in case I forget, I just want you to please remember this date and this phone call and let's see if it happens. And so that was the Wednesday. The Friday of that week, I am instructed by Clive Angel to open a Bank of Baroda account. And the Bank of Baroda account has an overdraft facility of 300 million rand. And as I open the bank account, I need to sign all rights of transacting on this account to a gentleman by the name of Mark Chipkin. Now, this shocked me because in January of that year, I'd opened a business account with APSA for Trillion Management Consulting. And everything in opening that APSA account seemed completely above board. There was nothing concerning about the APSA account at all. The APSA account had an overdraft facility at the time of something like 3 million rand. This Bank of Baroda account had an overdraft facility of something close to 300 million rand. And I asked Clive, I was like, why do we need this account? And Clive says, no, we need to facilitate offshore payments. And I said, but why do I need to sign all transacting power over to Mark when I'm liable? Because I'm the person opening the account. And they got angry with me and they said, but Bianca, you think you know better. You're not listening. And I felt bad, right? They knocked me off my confidence in that moment. I changed the letter so that the letter said that nobody can transact in the account without both Mark and I's approval. So that was a safeguard I, you tried to build in. I tried to build in. And that was the Friday. I think it was the 18th. It was the 18th of March, 2015. And I leave Melrose Arch and I'm driving out to my home. And I live in the four ways area. So I'm obviously stuck in traffic on the M1 and the N1, right? And while I'm in the car, I just burst out crying. And I found my husband and I just say to him, I'm like, look, this, this just doesn't sound right. There's something wrong here. It just doesn't feel right. I couldn't prove anything. I just had this really terrible feeling about it and I didn't want to have anything to do with it and I woke up the next morning at two o'clock on Saturday morning at two o'clock in the morning and I started typing my resignation letter and I only finished typing my resignation letter at six o'clock that morning it took me four hours to write this letter and I eventually sent it and I resigned that morning with immediate effect and I've never looked back I sometimes think that I, sh I stayed there three months too long. And I regret sometimes making that move. So that's what led me to resign. And I didn't intend at that moment in time to become a whistleblower. You just wanted to you get know? away from this because you could smell something was not right. And, and there was a part of me that wanted to convince myself that maybe I was being silly. Maybe I just imagined it, right? My husband, and this is where the trauma started coming into my personal life, my my husband and I would sometimes talk about it because we, we suddenly, both of us ended up unemployed. He had left the beers at the time, the company that he was working for, and I now left Trillion. So suddenly our household, we had, had two incomes, had no income overnight, and it wasn't planned. And sometimes we would sit outside in the patio and we'd talk about it, and he would say things to me like, maybe you should have stayed longer. Maybe you have been paranoid. You know, but that brings up a different, a different sense of trauma, which I'll describe later, but you know, because it wasn't confirmed at the time. And then one day 
it was in August 2016, I get a phone from the public protector and I threw up because I knew that the public protector would not be phoning me, asking me for an affidavit for things that were totally above board. Mm. That was the first time I knew for absolute certainty that my suspicions were right, that something was really wrong. And then from then on? So when I got the call from the public protector, I didn't know what to do. I mean, you know, as an average person, you never expect the public protector to be calling you. I obviously reached out to my husband. I was like, what do I do? I mean, both of us had to actually Google what the public protector office actually means. Like we, we, mm. we weren't sure, you know. I found my parents. My father was so scared. And we had family that at one point in their lives were involved in government somehow. So my mother just said, okay, I found this uncle. So I phoned this uncle of mine and I tell him, I'm like, look, I work for this company. Now the public protector wants to speak to me. What do I do? My uncle says to me, that's it. Make a copy of all your data that you've got. Hide it in in special places. People may come after you because he had a sense of what state capture was and I clearly didn't. And he put the fear of God in me and he said, Bianca, this is big and it's bigger than you can imagine. That's when I sort of realized, okay, things are going to go crazy. He was the one that said, although the public protector is good, it'll be best for you to just go with a lawyer. Just get a lawyer and make sure that that somebody is at least going through the things that you're saying, right? So I started the process of getting a lawyer. And when I eventually got a lawyer, and luckily that lawyer for me was Peter Harris, and he worked in consultation with David Lewis from Corruption Watch. And it was through consultation with them whilst preparing for the public protector, I realized the magnitude of my evidence and of my experience and the magnitude of state capture for the first time. This was now towards yeah. the end of 2016. Yeah, it was, but it was before it was before the state of capture report was released yes, yeah. because this is the evidence that I gave before, you know in consultation with the public protector and my husband it joined me for all the consultations and he started becoming incredibly scared and you know in a typical South African family your your husband is the head of the home right mm. and I think he felt I suspect that he felt that he couldn't even protect the family for what from what was going on at the time and what was unfolding and all he wanted me to do was to put this behind me. And so he would keep on saying, Bianca, don't speak to journalists. Don't help the cause. Um, Bianca, don't overshare with the public protector, which was in direct conflict to the advice that I was getting from my attorneys because my attorneys now Peter Harris and David Lewis. Well, David Lewis is not an attorney, but he was part of the consult. It's saying overshare, give them everything you've got. So I eventually met with the public protector and I took my my attorney's advice and I overshared. I told him every conceivable thing that I could remember that they asked for. I was in tears. I felt guilty for just being involved with the company. And I remember explicitly leaving that meeting and my husband having a fight with me saying, you've put our family at risk. You know, and that's how the personal trauma starts building up. Because I think for him, he maybe would have dealt with it a bit differently. And he couldn't control what I would say and what I couldn't say. And ultimately, it's with regret, my husband and I got divorced the following year in 2017 because I think fear just crippled both of us. This brings me to the next question. I want you to expand on the impact your decision to put all the facts on the table had on your life. There's a lot of things that people don't know, and I'll tell you what they are. I'd gotten divorced. We were together for over four years. Um, so we got divorced, sold the house. You know, I, I moved into a, a smaller place with my daughter, a co-custody of my daughter. So we got divorced in April of 2017. 
And at that point in time, I hadn't decided to become a public whistleblower. I had supported Jeff Budlender anonymously. He was in January and February, around about that time of 2015. Jeff Budlender, who was a senior counsel, was tasked by the chairman of Trillion, who at the time was Tokyo Sequale, to conduct an investigation into Trillion's dealings to find out independently if Trillion was complicit in stoke capture or not. And Jeff, Jeff investigated, and his report ultimately came out in about June or July 2017 and found that Trillion was, in fact, complicit in this and involved. But for Jeff to be able to do his investigation, he needed help. And Trillion weren't forthcoming with data. So he reached out to me, and I helped him with everything that I knew about Trillion. And you'll actually see me as an annexion in um, Jeff's report, although I was supposed to be anonymous at the time. I think it was an administrative oversight. He has all my contact details there. (laughs) I know it was a mistake and it wasn't his intention. But the cool thing about what Jeff did is that it forced me, I could no longer hide and I couldn't be anonymous anymore. I had to come out and I had to make things public, right? So I'm divorced now in April 2017. Jeff is still compiling his report in the background and Jeff's report comes out in June of 2017. And when Jeff's report comes out and it has my personal details in it as one of the annexures, my ex-husband pushes back at me. And my ex-husband says that I'm putting my daughter's life at risk and therefore I'm an unfit mother, not worthy of custody. Right, so we already divorced and the divorce wasn't that bad, but now things became incredibly acrimonious and my husband and I in the background have this fight. All the while, what's also happening in South Africa at the time is that um, Parliament had decided that there would be an inquiry into ESCOM, a parliamentary oversight inquiry into ESCOM. And I submitted an affidavit and I said, I'm willing and I, I would like to help the cause. And they kept on ignoring me. And I knew that they could never do a detailed um, investigation into Trillion and Eskom without the likes of my evidence because I was the CEO of management consulting. At the same time, the Gupta leaks were released. The media was going crazy. This notion of state capture was well known. And every single time I would read something about it or I would hear the headlines, I would sit and I'd cringe. I was trying to move on with my life and I got a job at Sage. So there was an intention for me to just move. I've now become a single mom and I just wanted to move on with my life as best I could while trying to help the country. The reason why I got divorced um, in the first place is because the, the frustration between my husband and I resulted in a domestic violence incident in front of my daughter. So that was the straw that broke the camel's back that led to the divorce. There was one day in September that my daughter got sick and my husband had to take her to the hospital. And when I went to the hospital to meet her there, she begged that she could come home with me. And my ex-husband hit me again because I was trying to just comfort my daughter and say that she must come with me. And then that day I went home alone because we went to the police station. The police, the police said, look, the, the divorce decree states that your daughter has to be home with the father so she can't come with you. And I went home and I decided that I wasn't going to be bullied anymore. And I felt that the state capture thing was a bit of a bully for me because I wanted to help the country, but the country didn't want me to help them. I was, I was really trying to put my evidence forward at the parliamentary inquiry. The Zonda Commission wasn't even a, a, an idea at the time. I was trying all these things and nothing was happening. So I eventually threatened the people that were helping me, which is Plough. And I told them that if they wouldn't help me make my statement public, I would do it on my own. They initially said, okay, well, do it on your own. And they changed their minds a few days later and they said, okay, don't worry, Bianca, we're still going to protect you and we're still going to give you legal cover. 
And then I made my stuff public. And when I made my, my evidence public, I think the benefit of it is that it linked up with the Gupta leaks very well and it gave additional context that not a lot of people had. And the narrative of state capture at the time has been driven a lot by our investigative journalists and our NGOs like Alta at the time. Our state institutions weren't doing anything. Our NPA was riddled with corruption. You couldn't go to a police station and report these things. You know, so the only saving grace that South Africa had at the time was the free press. And the, the, the journalists went absolutely crazy because the information that I, that I released was, was damning. And it was damning towards McKenzie specifically in the involvement in Trillian. From a personal cost perspective, what people don't understand is that the day after my statement became public and the whole world was saying that I was brave to do what I did, I was sitting in mediation and in high court trying to fight for custody for my daughter because my ex-husband said that I'd put her at risk again. And that's been my struggle, that every single time I try and do something for the benefit of the country, it seems to cost me on the side of my custody with my daughter. I've won subsequently, so I, I have majority custody of my daughter now. But another side effect of that was that, you know, now I've got a public profile in terms of whistleblowing and I've never been able to get a job again since Sage. Nothing. I, I got a job at Signia for a little bit, but I really was, I experienced trauma and I left Magda after working with her for four months. I've put in over two and a half thousand job applications and sure. absolutely nothing has come back. So it's been really difficult. You know, I had to release my pension to support my daughter and I. I was 38 at the time. I mean, I should not be releasing my pension at 38. I became a professional whistleblower to the extent that everybody wanted affidavits. Everybody. Eskom wanted affidavits to try and claw back money from that was paid to Trillian and McKenzie. They won that suit. And it's at the back of my affidavit that we could prove that Trillian did absolutely no work. So Eskom benefited from a clawback of $1.6 billion. So I know that what I did was worth it because Eskom won that fight and McKenzie had to pay back a billion. I know that Trillian still has to pay back 600 million, but they're fighting that. But the, the point is that they won the case. Um, so there's a benefit to what I've done, but the loss that I've experienced is enormous. You know, my daughter experienced trauma because I was experiencing trauma. There was a time when even my parents were advising me to not do anything because they were just so scared of what would happen to my daughter and I. You know, my, and my parents, I mean, like I said earlier, they're pastors. You know, they, they, are, they are so morally and ethically strong and correct. And there was a time when I remember my parents crying and saying, this is not the future we wish for you. And I was crying with them saying, it's not the future I wanted either. But they got over their fear and they are very supportive at the moment. But I remember there was one time and they were so scared that they actually felt that if I did nothing, it would be better because they didn't know what had happened to my daughter and I. So, um, yeah, it, it's been one hell of a journey. And I get therapy now every week. I have to, I'm treated for trauma, PTSD. Yes. Every Wednesday I have to have therapy. I'm on Zoloft and some other meds, and I'm doing a lot better. I really am doing a lot better than I used to be. That's actually been a good thing of this COVID pandemic for me is that it's forced isolation. And in isolation, I've been able to focus purely on therapy. So things are looking better from a health perspective, but maybe not so much from an economic perspective. You know, my pension has run out now. My mother is now supporting my household and she doesn't even live here. She's in a towel and she's going to retire in two years. 
And yeah, I mean, I didn't think that I would be at the stage in my life where my mom has to, you know, give me an allowance so that I could actually put food on the, on the table for my daughter. But that's what it's cost me to do the right thing for this country. And it's a very difficult pull to swallow. How old are you? I'm 40 now. So you should actually be at the peak of your personal career. success <laughs> and career and family life and everything else. Absolutely. Look, I'm at the peak of my health. I think mentally my daughter and I are doing a lot better. So you can see it's evident to anybody that knows us that the impacts of trauma have lessened significantly. However, I've lost my career. I've lost my sense of um, I've been able to earn or, or determine any kind of income stream. And it's not what I intended. I, I didn't expect this when I put my hand up to do the right thing. I thought state capture was the easiest thing to deal with and fighting for custody was the more difficult thing to deal with. So I wanted to get rid of the state capture thing, do my moral obligation, get rid of it so that I could focus purely on custody of my daughter. Um, and little did I know that the one impacted the other and things just got so much worse. So much worse now. Did you get According any death Yes. According to Pluff, right, because Pluff at one point had like a bit of a security sort of intelligence detail on me. According to Pluff, I was threatened, but not me directly. So I never received any direct threats. But I think Pluff did receive threats on my behalf type of thing. Okay. Because I just cut off contact with the world completely. Um, but but it doesn't take away from the paranoia, Ilza. Yes, I can imagine. You know, the, the, the one day I went shopping, um, to pick and pay and I parked the car in the basement and I'm busy pushing this trolley to my car and somebody walks past me very quickly and I just fall on the ground and I start screaming because I just thought that somebody was trying to hurt me. What do people do for 10 billion Rand? I can't fathom that amount. What should people do for 10 billion? I think that people don't value me for 10 billion Rand and they would hurt me for 10 billion Rand. And that's what I had to carry, even although I didn't have any explicit threats to me directly. That's what I had to think about. I took 10 billion ran away from McKenzie and the Guptas. That's a lot of money. You certainly yeah. meddled in somebody's lunch there. <laughs> yeah. what, what I want to know is if you had the choice, will you do it again? You know, Elsa, this is the difficult thing. My daughter's now eight and she comes back from school sometimes and she talks about um, – Somebody did this to her in the playground and she was, and I'd ask her, did you go tell your teacher? And she would say she didn't want to go tell her teacher because she doesn't want to be a tattletale. Mm. And I started thinking about this thing to my daughter and about whistleblowing and tattletaling. It's like, should I encourage my daughter to be like me and be a whistleblower? Or must I say to her, yes, I don't want you to be a tattletale. And I find myself conflicted in that all the time. But particularly... I think about if my daughter found herself in my situation that I found myself in in 2016 and she came to me as a mother and she asked me, mommy, what should I do? Would I be like my ex-husband and in some cases my parents and tell her, put your head down and forget it? Mm. Or would I encourage her to do the right thing? And the thing is this, I want my daughter to live by her values no matter what, but I want her to know what the consequences are. And that's what I think is different with me is that I went into something where nobody could tell me what the consequences were because state capture had never really happened in South Africa before. Not that we were aware of, right? Mm, mm. Nobody could tell me, Bianca, this, that you would lose your job. Bianca, you're going to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. 
you're going to lose your career, you're going to lose your husband. Nobody could tell me those things. And if they told me that, maybe I would have reconsidered. But now in hindsight, I would encourage my daughter to do the right thing at all costs because I wanted to sleep better at night. You know, and that's the benefit. That's the only benefit that I have of this is that I can honestly walk with pride knowing that I'm living by my values and I've done the right thing and nobody can tell me anything else apart from that. But I struggle when I have to pay school fees. Of course. Of and course. sometimes I think I want to kick myself to say, but Bianca, why did you do it? So sometimes, sometimes I get frustrated at the consequences of me doing the right thing, but I don't actually regret doing it. And it's really difficult, Paul, to swallow because I can't tell you that by me serving my country best, it comes at a price of me not being able to support my family or my daughter. Those two don't make sense. And it's that disparity that is a huge issue in the country at the moment. Mm. Whistleblowers shouldn't have to have this, this unbalanced scale of consequences. If they're helping the country, shouldn't the country help them? That's what yeah. I want to come to next. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what did you earn when, for instance, working at Anglo? Um, I want to, to say... Two to and people, a half million a year. Two and a half million a year. And now you are yeah. dependent on your mother. Because my dad's retired. For food money, basically. Mm-hmm. So what would you like to change when it comes to whistleblowing? Would you like to see that whistleblowers get a part, a percentage of what they save the country or the uh, company they work for? Would you like to see changes in the law around whistleblowing? What's your wish list as a whistleblower? Um, You see, I think the two go hand in hand. They're sort of like a hand in glove a little bit, right? If you look at the U.S., for example, the U.S. has got like all this legislation that says that – if you whistleblow on something, you can get a, a percentage of, of whatever's recovered, right? But, but what that means is that the country itself and through the legislation, they actually are taking away the stigma of whistleblowing. They actually are encouraging whistleblowing as a right ethical thing to do. South Africa is in a – I can't say to you straight out that South Africa should consider giving a percentage of um, the proceeds of savings to whistleblowers. I mean, it will be great. But the biggest issue that I think is even beyond that is the fact that there's a stigma in South Africa society. People like me are viewed as these the slice of impimpies or troublemakers. And that's why I can't get a job. My skills haven't changed by blowing the whistle. The skills that I had that made me become a CEO and that made me the only techno-economist in Anglo-American in 2015 are still the skills that I have today. Nothing's changed. But there's this perception of me being a troublemaker that nobody will tell you to your face because nobody has the balls to actually say it, right? Mm. And once that perception changes and people actually start respecting the bravery that it takes to become a whistleblower, I think the rewards come automatically. I don't necessarily want people to give me money for me doing the right thing. I want people to not stigmatize me anymore. If I can get money because of the stigmatism, because I'm stigmatized and I can't get another job, yes, then the country should help me financially to look after my daughter because my daughter doesn't deserve that. But if you remove the stigma and if you celebrated people doing the right thing, and if I could move on with my life, but people saying, yes, we want to employ somebody that, that, that is that brave, I wouldn't need financial support from the government. So I think it's like sort of like a hand-in-glove situation. And I don't have the answers in terms of how to fix it. I just can tell you what went wrong with me. And I'm not not trying to get a job 
Mm. I'm young. I'm colored. I I've got a postgraduate degree in physics and maths. I've got years of experience in financial modeling and all this type of stuff. And and where I used to be headhunted every year in my career, now I get two and a half thousand with a great two and four mu letters. Yeah, which brings me to another question. Firstly, you apply to state and private sector companies. Absolutely. Okay. Which which brings me to the question, is everything above board in the private sector if even they are scared to touch you? You see, the private sector is a little bit lucky because they don't have to. They're not compelled to report things like irregular and wasteful expenditure. So I think corruption is rife in the private sector. Just that nobody's shining a light on it. And that's why somebody like you are being avoided. That's, that's my theory. And it's not my theory in feeling sorry for myself or anything like that. I mean, I've applied for positions where it was jobs that I was doing when I was 28. Right. So technically I'm overqualified, but I was happy to take a huge cut to my salary, obviously, for the same sort of salary that I was earning when I was 28 years old. Even those jobs I don't qualify for. Or I'm not good enough for, I get rid of the great in formulators for. Things that I did in my younger years, I still can't even, apparently I'm not good enough to do now. The problem is that nobody in the private sector will come up straight up and tell you this is the issue. Because no one has the ball to tell you the real concern, right? You just get this automated response and that's the end of it. Um, in the public sector, you just don't hear from anybody at all. I mean, in, in some cases, I've heard from the private sector that they're concerned that I was conflict, that I'm conflicted because I did work for um, an entity of interest, right? And at least that I can understand and I can appreciate. At least yes. there's some sort of feedback in that regard. But I mean, in other instances, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Were you also no not sense. even approached by the state entities you helped? No, I approached, you know, I wrote this infamous letter to Andre Dureta in yes, October last year. I remember that. And straight after that, I replied to him and I attached my CV and I said, if there's any positions, even on a contracting basis, I'd love to help you with your with your capital portfolio because I come from that experience, right? And that's what I did in mining. And I got a reply from Eskim from the head of HR, the executive of HR saying, sorry, but there's no positions available at this point. Good luck. But Bianca, I'm a total layperson, but my instinct tells me that you could help ISCOM turn around yes. the entity. I tried, but I uh, can't force myself on them. You know, and this is why, Ilza, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, at, at one point, Arta had subcontracted me just to give me a little bit of funding during the COVID pandemic, right? And I was working with Arta as an investig- investigator for about three months. And I mean... The value that I added to the work that we were doing there has been, it's been enormous. And then it's used by the SOEs. But when I approach the SOEs directly, it doesn't work. You know, arts has been different because they don't stigmatize me. Mm. You know, mm. so they gave me that opportunity. And it's not for Arta to give me a job. It's not for NGOs to feel compelled to give me a job. My issue is the private and public sector and their perception of whistleblowers. Mm, is mm. absolute nonsense. Why does my daughter at eight-year-old already believe that being a tattletale is bad? I certainly didn't bring her up that way. Yes. There's something in society that suggests that there's this impimpy view. I've never, ever mentioned the word tattletale to my daughter. She comes up from school one day and she says to me, I don't want to be a tattletale. And I've got to tell her 
what is a tattletale? And I eventually told my daughter, a tattletale is a whistleblower and that's what mommy is. My daughter honestly feels conflicted by that because the, she, she's not quite sure that mommy's a good person yet because she's not on YouTube. She can't see all the interviews I've done. She can't read about the complexity of what I blew the whistle on. Yes. So my daughter doesn't appreciate the sacrifice that I've made. She will when she's older. But for the moment, she, she struggles with that reconciliation. There's something in society that stops people from wanting to blow the whistle. There's something inherent in society that does that. And I have no idea what it is. So in just summarizing, what you say is we need a moral shift on telling the Absolutely. truth. Society as well as public and private sector needs to value the role of whistleblowers instead of stigmatizing it. We should look after whistleblowers um, because they actually do great work in saving economies, saving countries, uh, saving companies. But now a practical question. As you know, Alta has a whistleblowing platform. People can blow the whistle in absolute security and, and they can be anonymous. Given everything that you've told us now, what will your advice be for somebody listening here and saying, look, even though it's going to cost me, I, I feel I've got information to share about, for instance, state capture. What will your advice be? Look, I think there's nothing wrong in preparing to blow a whistle, right? So draw up a statement, get your information all in the line, and really spend time in figuring out what you want to do and why do you want to do it. And I think when that bundle is ready, I do think that it's prudent on the person, especially if they have a family, to go and seek advice in terms of what's the right way of doing it, that's the one thing. The second thing is to always know what you're putting your hand up for. So there's a lot of avenues that people can do that. They can approach people like Arta, like Pluff. There's a lot of organizations that do a lot of whistleblower support, right? And what you will get from institutions or entities like that is at least a view of how this will change your life. So when you do decide to blow the whistle, at least try and make it as informed as reasonably possible. In my case, I would have wished that I could have prepared my personal life more. I wish Mm. that I could have told my parents, this is what's going to happen to me. You know, be prepared to support me. I wish I could have had more conversations or the right conversations with my husband to say, I'm doing this. You know, mm. you either support me or you don't, but but this is what I'm doing. This is what the impacts are going to be. Let's brace ourselves. You know, it's sort of like a roller coaster ride. Like get ready while you're going on the uphill before it starts going down. And I think it's prudent that you do say yes to whistleblowing. I think we, we need to live in a society that's a lot more ethical. And that's why we need whistleblowers. But if I could, like if my daughter decided to blow a whistle on something significant, I would make sure that she is completely prepared. I would make sure that I'm prepared to support her. I'd have financial resources to support her for a couple of years. If she was harmed in any way, I'd make sure our passports were ready so we could leave. I would get her a psychiatrist to help her through the trauma even before she did it. And that's the best example I could put forward is that if my daughter decided to do something like this, what would I do for her? Will it help a whistleblower uh, to have, you, you spoke about a bundle, but to have that evidence, to make copies? I think compared to your average person, maybe I'm a little bit more IT savvy, right? Yeah. So when I did leave Trillion, I made, a, I made an image of my computer. So I had evidence of everything. What I know in hindsight now is that generally that's not what people do, but that's just been practiced for me is that I've always had copies and I always have backups of everything that I've ever done. 
So I was lucky in that regard so that when I made my statement public, I had all my supporting data in its metadata format, undistorted. And that's the one thing that I can tell people is that it's not appropriate to just throw accusations at other people. And an accusation becomes a fact only when it's backed up by evidence. So if you are going to blow a whistle on something or someone or an entity where it has consequences on other people or entities, it's prudent on you to make sure that your facts are aligned and supported with evidence. And if you cannot do that, you really need to reevaluate whether you want to blow the whistle or not. For me, I would only do it if it was without dispute. And that's why I do think getting that counsel from whistleblower organizations or whistleblower eccentric organizations like Clough and Alta, they would give the advice to say, look, at the moment in a court of law based on the, in this country and our legislation, what you are saying would be considered hearsay. You know, an organization like Alta could very easily take somebody's advice, keep them anonymous and still do the investigation, for example. Yes. However, if they wanted to stand by the data, and they wanted to publicly blow the whistle. An example from Arta is like Cynthia Stumple, for example. She had supporting information. And I think that's where it becomes really important that a whistleblower stands by their statements where they have factual proof to back it. And that's why I don't think whistleblowers can ever make a decision on their own. You have to end up walking the journey with somebody by your side. And I would hope that that, that that entity is a whistleblower eccentric entity, like I've said. My very last question, is there anything you would like to change about whistleblowing laws? I don't believe that we have any laws at all. We've got the Public Disclosures Act that only looks at if you're working for a specific organization yeah. and what happens when you blow the whistle when you're working for the organization. But what happens when you want to blow the whistle like me? The Public yes. Disclosures Act could not help me. At all. It couldn't help Cynthia. It couldn't help Nene. It couldn't help Pinky Mantle. It couldn't help Praveen Gordon. It couldn't help so many whistleblowers that we have today that we can see from the Zonda Commission. The Public Disclosures Act has failed blatantly. So in as far as South Africa is concerned, what I would love to see is South Africa to actually just get something. A law. And right now the Public Disclosures Act is not it. Mm. If the Public Disclosures Act was so effective, how does say capture still happen? Indeed. So in my opinion, we have got no legislation to protect whistleblowers. And it'll be absolutely fantastic if we can at least get something. I'm not even saying let's look at what the state's got and so forth. South Africa can look at all the countries in the world and we can draw on experience. We can draw on lessons learned and we can establish something in the same way that we've got this amazing constitution that we have. We should be able to establish something to promote an ethical society. And so says Bianca Goodson, the lady who exposed Trillion and the role of McKinsey in state capture. And just a reminder, about 10 billion rand that was at stake here. You listened to a podcast brought to you by the organization Undoing Tax Abuse. If you like Outer's work, please consider donating to us by visiting our website at outer.co.za. You decide how much you want to contribute.